There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and it is August, which means that I'm recording with the help and assistance of Hannah. Do you want to say hi? Hi. Say welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. Perfect. She's my mommy. I'm her mommy, yes. And there are going to be a few clicks because I'm coloring. And there's going to be, so there's going to be some potential noise because she's sitting here coloring. (laughs) Now that we've got that out of the way. You know, you could wait until you had the absolute perfect conditions. There is that saying that you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the complete So I'm going with that. Anyway, hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 170-something. I've lost track. And it's about a composer who wrote for a church he didn't believe in, how he covered up his faith, and one of his great creative works. It's about William Byrd and the Gradualia. If you listen to BBC Radio 3, you will remember that a few weeks ago, Byrd was their composer of the week. There was a fantastic accompanying radio drama by DJ Britton to preserve the health of man, which was all about Byrd's writing of the Gradualia. William Byrd and I have a very personal connection. As many of you may know, I've said this before several times, that my entree into Tudor history was singing William Byrd's Ave Verum Corpus in a high school chamber choir at Pequot Valley High School in Kinsers, Pennsylvania. Go Braves! My choir director had talked about how Byrd was a Catholic writing under a Protestant queen and how difficult that must have been for him. And something about that really struck the teenage rebel in me. So I began to learn about Rekis and Catholics and their experiences and religious tensions. And now, 25 years later, here we are. Actually, the very best full circle moment I've ever had with Bird was when I lived in London and my friend and I started a chamber choir and we sang Ave Verum Corpus in one of those lovely newer Gothic style churches that are all dotted around London. This one was in Highgate, not far from the Great North Road, where Elizabeth would have come in glory from Hatfield to be crowned queen. And so there we were singing Ave Verum Corpus. And it was one of those moments where you think, yeah, if I died right now, it would be okay. I'm complete. So that's a personal share about Bird and I. 
Anyway, today we're going to talk about Bird and the Gradualia. And one note, I'm not going to insert music. Music copyright laws have changed recently in Europe, and it's just a little too risky to even play around with even snippets. So no music. But I do have a Spotify playlist up at englandcast.com slash bird. So you can listen there. But really quickly first, um, a quick note about TutorCon. Two quick notes. First of all, TutorCon is still happening this year, as you have heard from October 1st through 3rd in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Three days of tutor merriment, learning, new friendships, all of that. Tickets are officially sold out, but we have a few people who are looking to exchange their tickets because they can't come for whatever last minute reason, and they'd like to sell them to others who might like to come. So if you would like to come to TutorCon, don't despair that tickets are sold out. You can still come if you let me know. There are maybe four or five people, I think, who are looking to sell their tickets like that. So you can go to englandcast.com slash TutorCon2021 to get all the details and email me from there to get matched up with someone who wants to sell their ticket. Again, that's englandcast.com slash TutorCon2021. And then I just want to give a quick shout out to one of the TutorCon author sponsors. Marie McPherson is helping to make TutorCon possible by sponsoring um, the event. And I just want to give a quick shout out to her series, The First Blast of the Trumpet, which is all about the life of John Knox. So she is a Scottish author. She's won prizes, including the Martha Hamilton Prize for Creative Writing from Edinburgh University, Writer of the Year 2011 from Tynanesque Writers. And she is a member of the Historical Writers Association, Historical Novel Society, and Society of Authors. So her first blast of the trumpet, John Knox Book One, came out in 2018. And I'm just going to read you the snippet. If you're looking for a good read at the end of summer here, you could check this out. It's on Amazon and all of the other places. Hales Castle, 1511, midnight on a doom-laden Halloween, and Elizabeth Hepburn, feisty daughter of the Earl of Bothwell, makes a wish to wed her lover, the poet David Lindsay. But her uncle has other plans. To safeguard the interests of the Hepburn family, she is to become a nun and succeed her aunt as prioress of St. Mary's Abbey Haddington. However, plunged into the political maelstrom and religious turmoil of the early Scottish Reformation, Her life there is hardly one of quiet contemplation. Strong-willed and independent, she clashes with those who question her unorthodox regime at St. Mary's, including Cardinal David Beaton and her rival, Sister Marieth Hay. But her greatest struggle is against her godson, John Knox. Witnessing his rejection of the Roman Catholic Church, aided by David Lindsay, she despairs that the sins of her past may have contributed to his present disenchantment. So check out Marie McPherson and thank you to her for sponsoring TutorCon. All right, so let's talk about William Byrd. I am so interested in William Byrd because he's one of these people who crossed over between the religions and he was active. His life was actually really affected by the changes in religion because of the liturgy that he was writing. So he was first born around 1540. So he would have been born after the break with Rome, unlike Thomas Tallis, who was older than him, and we'll talk about their friendship in a minute. Very little is known about his early life. They say that he was apparently bred up under Tallis, which has led to people thinking that maybe he was one of the children of the Chapel Royal. He might have been a choir boy during the time of Mary Tudor, in which case he would have been introduced to the Catholic liturgy 
at a very young age. It's such an interesting time in music, this period in the 1550s, um, mixing between Edward and people writing in English for the Protestant liturgy, and then switching back to Latin and Catholic, and then the mix um, under Elizabeth. So of course, if he was a choir boy, then he would have gotten to know the Catholic liturgy at a very young age. Nothing is known of who his parents are, and very little is known about his first 20 years. But he did become a student, and later he became very, very close with Thomas Tallis around the 1560s. The first actual record we have of him, he was the organist of Lincoln Cathedral in 1563. And then he joined the court as a gentleman of the Chapel Royal. He shared responsibilities with Tallis. Tallis was getting a little bit older by now. He was maybe thinking about retirement. So Bird came in to help him out in 1572. Personally, he married a Juliana Burley in 1568. And their third child, Thomas, was named after his godfather, Thomas Tallis, and is the only child of Bird who became a musician. Juliana died sometime around 1586, and then he married another wife, Ellen, and they had two more children who are mentioned in later documents, but we don't have their birthdays, and so not very much is known about them. Bird got to be incredibly close with Thomas Tallis. They became very good friends, even though there was a generation between them. They would work on these projects together, which wound up leaving us with a huge collection of music from both of them. So for example, in 1575, Elizabeth granted them a joint monopoly for the importing, printing, publishing, and sale of music and the printing of music paper. So this meant that they were basically the only ones in the country who would be able to print music until this monopoly ended in 1596. Under their imprint, the first works that appeared later that year, a collection of canciones sacre dedicated to the queen, probably a sort of thank you for their new monopoly on printing. There were 34 motets. Talis contributed 16 and then Bird wrote 18. Some of the motets were actually related to the Roman Catholic liturgy, which was a little bit risky for them. This is after the Elizabethan settlement. This is in the 1570s, the mid-1570s, when people are starting to get quite suspicious of Catholics. But they did include the Roman Catholic liturgy because they knew that Elizabeth always had a bit of a soft spot for the music of the Catholic service. Later on, the business, which was supposed to have been quite successful, but was failing, it became clear how much it was failing, and Elizabeth actually came in and swooped in and rescued Bird financially, giving him a lease of some property that provided him with some income as well. In 1585, Tallis died, and so the partnership ended, but Bird kept the monopoly on music printing until 1596, like I said. In 1577, which is now two years into him having this monopoly on printed music, the laws against recusancy, which is the refusal to attend Anglican services, began to be enforced. And that year, Bird and his family moved to Harlington in Middlesex. Apparently, from the early 1570s onwards, Bird became more involved with the Catholic faith, and this became a major factor in his life, both his personal life and his creative life. I said that we didn't know very much about who his family were or anything about his early years, but some musicologists believe that Bird's family were Protestants, though they're not sure whether it was uh, something that they deeply felt in their heart or if they were just conforming to what the law was. 
Bird himself may have had these Protestant beliefs in his youth. Apparently, there's a recently discovered fragment of a setting of an English translation of a hymn that Martin Luther had written, Erhalt uns Herr bei deinem Wort, which has an attribution to a bird, B-I-R-D-E. And it includes this line that says, from Turk and Pope defend us, Lord. So putting the Pope in with the Ottoman Empire is definitely something that really strikes us as being quite Protestant. But from the 1570s onwards, Bird is hanging out with Catholics. He was close with Thomas Paget. In 1573, he wrote a letter on behalf of an unnamed friend to Paget. So he felt close enough to, to kind of make some requests of him. His wife, Juliana, was first cited for recusancy at Harlington in Middlesex in 1577. And then even he himself is in the recusancy lists from 1584. In 1559, part of the Elizabethan settlement was the Act of Uniformity, which made celebrating Catholic liturgy completely illegal, which meant that much of his output, much of the work that he did, especially the Latin music, like his masses, were performed in secret. This is something that I think about a lot is these Catholics who were singing the bird masses uh, in secret, just sitting around their tables. There's a YouTube video that David Skinner, the musicologist who I interviewed, gosh, six, seven years ago now, uh, put out of several singers just sitting around a table at Ingastone Hall that we'll talk about in a second here, um, singing a bird mass. And that's exactly what it would have been like, these people just sitting around the table with hopefully friendly servants as well. And and it would have been sort of a clandestine sort of performance of this music. And I think there's something quite compelling when you listen to the music with that kept in mind. Anyway, so Bird and these other Catholics, even though it's completely illegal, they continue to celebrate the Mass. And often they're listening to this music, singing this music behind, you know, closed locked doors. One of Bird's patrons, Sir John Peter, held these secret services in his home, Ingotstone Hall. It still stands today. There's a contemporary account of one of these sorts of services that were held in July of 1586 in celebration of the arrival from Rome of the Catholic missionaries Henry Garnet and Robert Southwell. And it says, a congenial household and company, the gentleman was also a skilled musician and had an organ and other musical instruments and choristers, male and female, members of his household. During these days, it was just as if we were celebrating an uninterrupted octave of some great feast. Mr. Bird, the very famous English musician and organist, was among the company. Peter also hid Catholics who were being persecuted, and Ingotstone Hall has two secret priest holes hideaways that were built specifically to hide priests and all of the different religious paraphernalia, the stuff you need to celebrate mass from discovery by the priest hunters. Of course, it was still very, very dangerous. Both Garnet and Southwell were arrested, tortured, and executed. They were hung and their heads were hung up as a warning to others. Being Catholic and preaching Catholicism was not something that was accepted. And the whole question, of course, comes from the fact that the Pope saw Elizabeth as illegitimate because Catherine of Aragon was still alive when Elizabeth was born to Anne Boleyn. So if that marriage with Catherine of Aragon was still valid and the marriage to Anne Boleyn was not valid, 
then obviously Elizabeth was not legitimate. And so the Pope said that Catholics didn't have to respect her as their queen. So where does your loyalty lie? Does it lie to the Pope, who is, you know, God's vicar on earth? Or does it lie with your queen? This is the big question that Catholics were having to deal with. And they were trying to figure out how do they stay loyal to their queen and also to their faith. Some of the kind of the first ideas of separation of church and state, right? You can be loyal to your head of state and also to your pope, and they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. Things only got worse after the gunpowder plot in 1605. Bird was still alive then, and James I was not very pleased with the Catholics in general. So one example is a Catholic priest was arrested in 1605. This is right around the time of the gunpowder plot was found with copies of Bird's music. And the publisher who printed the pro-Catholic text had his ears cut off and was imprisoned for life. So this wasn't a joking matter having this music. This was quite seditious. In the 1580s, Bird delved deeper into Catholicism. Pope Pius V released the papal bull in 1570, absolving all of Elizabeth's subjects from allegiance to her. And this basically made her an outlaw, according to the church. And more and more Catholics were seen with suspicion, and they were linked with treason, all this kind of stuff. And then come in the missionary priests trained at the English College in Douai, which is now in France, then it was part of the Spanish Netherlands. And also many of them were trained in Rome. So in the 1570s, we see these priests coming in, these missionary priests, and suddenly the relationship between the Catholics and the government is becoming much, much worse. In 1583, Byrd got into trouble because he was associating with Paget, who was suspected of having a part in the Throckmorton plot and also for sending money to Catholics abroad. So Byrd's membership in the Chapel Royal was apparently suspended for a time, and there were some restrictions that they put on his movement, and also his house was placed on a search list. And then by 1586, he was at that gathering celebrating the arrival of Henry Garnet and Robert Southwell. And maybe because of this tension, Byrd was able to write some of his greatest works. Some of his greatest work was setting these Catholic Latin texts. He wrote three settings of the Mass, Bird's Masses for three, four, and five voices, and then his Gradualia, which is what that radio program on Radio 3 was dealing with. And what the Gradualia was, was a collection of 109 pieces of music for the entire Catholic Church year. And it includes some of the most amazing examples of polyphony from the entire Renaissance. And one thing is that it's it's very obvious that these this music was made for these secret gatherings, the mass for three voices. This wasn't writing for the the resources of the large chapel royal. It was written for just people that would get together with, you know, for amateurs. And mostly they had single voices for many people. And also he wrote the top parts for women rather than boys. The mass for three voices for four voices. These are these are pieces that are very accessible. You don't have to be a professional singer to sing them. And they are written for with the female parts in mind. So it's clear that he was intending them. They were written for people, again, just having these secret, secret masses in their home. William Byrd dedicated his gradualia to Peter, writing that its contents had mostly proceeded from your house, which is most friendly to me and mine. 
And then he also said, these little flowers are plucked, as it were, from your gardens and are most rightfully due you as tithes. It's interesting that he went through a period, his middle phase from around 1575 to 1591. And that period, the the music is very sad, very despondent. It's something that Joseph Kerman has said that his reputation for unusual gravity stems from this period of his lifetime. And these are years where he wrote songs of sadness and piety, as they're known, and also some of the Psalms, texts that are talking a lot about piety and about suffering and the destruction of Jerusalem and the desire of the children of Israel to have liberation from the yoke of our captivity. And there are musicologists like Joseph Kerman who think that these pieces are metaphors for what the Catholics are experiencing under Elizabeth. By the 1590s, we see Bird basically embracing his Catholic religion and, and trying to make the best of it and writing this liturgical music. This is when he wrote the masses in three, four, and five parts, which were published by Thomas East in the mid-1590s. The editions actually are undated, and they don't name the printer, and also they only have one piece per part book to help with concealment. And that's sort of a reminder that even carrying these books was still really dangerous and could still get you in a lot of trouble. And it's interesting to think about how this tension played with Bird. In some ways, almost helped his creativity. The masses are, if you don't know them, you need to listen to them. Listen to the Spotify playlist. They're they're just magical. And they are even now considered absolute masterpieces of Elizabethan polyphony. And then he moved on to the Gradualia, which was published between 1605 and 1607. And these are motets that are in a liturgical order. They they are grouped according to the feasts of the Catholic year. And Bird himself basically says what they are to be used for in the introduction, where he dedicates the pieces to true lovers of music. Here set forth for your exercising the offices of the whole year, which are proper to the chief feasts of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all saints. Moreover, others in five voices with their words drawn from the fountain of Holy Writ, also the office of the Feast of Corpus Christi, with more customary antiphons of the same Blessed Virgin, and other songs in four voices to the same kind, also all hymns composed in honor of the Virgin. Finally, various songs in three voices sung at the Feast of Easter. Further to the end that they may be ordered each in its own place in the various parts of the service, I have added a special index at the end of the book. Here all that are proper to the same feast may be easily found, grouped together, though differing in the number of voices. Of course, after 1603, James I came to the throne, and a lot of Catholics thought that things were going to be easier for them. Of course, his mother had been Mary Queen of Scots, but... They didn't reckon with the level of Protestantism that James I had and how strongly he believed in the Protestant beliefs, just how suspicious he would become of Catholics as well, and especially after the gunpowder plot that really amped up. The Gradualia itself is dedicated to Henry Howard, who is a Catholic member of the nobility, and also Sir John Peter, who had become a peer in 1603 under the title Lord Peter of Riddle. And it seems as if these pieces kind of reflect this hope that the Catholics must have had for an easier life under James. But things did not become easier for the Catholics. 
And by 1607, when he was publishing another part of the Gradualia, several of the texts were not published. They were too sensitive for publication in light of some of the anti-Catholic persecution, which came about after the gunpowder plot of 1605. There's a story that also talks about how dangerous this music was. Apparently, this music was being moved around between the different country houses of the Catholic families. And there was a young Frenchman named Charles de Ligny, who was arrested. He was followed from one identified country house by spies. He was taken, he was searched, and he was found to be carrying a copy of Bird's 1605 set. And he was arrested for that. So Bird's music, like I said, it it was quite dangerous to be carrying it around. But by 1610, Bird seemed to feel safe enough to reissue both sets, the 1605 and the 1607, with new title pages. So the Gradualia was really sort of his masterpiece, his writing his belief system down and putting it out there for the support of his Catholic religious friends and family and his way to make being a Catholic a little bit easier to have this beautiful music to sing to, to remind them of their relationship with God and to kind of lift them up and have them feel not so alone. So there's so much that can be talked about with Bird. There could be a whole podcast series, like an entire series just on William Bird alone. And maybe in the future, I will dig deeper and do some more episodes on him. But for now, I really wanted to just sort of introduce you to him, the tensions in this personal life that he had, his music and the masterpiece of the Gradualia. So I hope you enjoyed it. Again, check the show notes. There are a lot of different links in there to the BBC Three drama that happened a few weeks ago that was on. That was really great. And also some of the albums. I recommend that you listen to Singing in Secret, Clandestine Catholic Music by William Byrd, and that's by the Marian Consort. You can find that on Spotify in the uh, show notes at englandcast.com slash bird. That's B-Y-R-D englandcast.com slash BYRD. I'll have notes and sources and others listening suggestions there. So let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO or join the Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds, tutorlearningcircle.com. And also remember about the TudorCon tickets. If you would like to come, we can make that possible. englandcast.com slash TudorCon2021 to figure out how to get a ticket from one of the people that is trying to transfer theirs. So thanks so much for listening. And I will be back in a couple of weeks. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.